Hello and welcome to the Chacha Wakbada Basset Creek Oral History Podcast, where our guests discuss ways that they and other indigenous peoples have lived, worked, and played in the Chacha Wakbada watershed for thousands of years. This project was created in Minnesota Makoche, or Minnesota, the traditional and contemporary homelands of the Dakota people. The project was co-led by Dr. Casey Keeler and Crystal Boyd with support from community partners. More information is included at the end of this episode. On behalf of everyone who contributed to this project, thank you for tuning in. So good afternoon. I am joined today by Ben Yawaki um, for the Haha Wakbadan Bassett Creek Oral History Project. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon. So I know that right now you have transitioned and you're living in Seattle, but before that move, um, when you were in the Twin Cities, when and for how long did you live or work in the area surrounding Bassett Creek? Uh, I originally grew up in uh, Brooklyn Park, um, which is a, a ways away from Bassett Creek, but um, I originally got acquainted with the area um, when my dad started fishing on uh, Medicine Lake in Plymouth. And so um, that was about when I was in like 15, 16 years old. So um, that got me, um, you know, acquainted with the, the origins of Bassett Creek and being able to explore around that area. Um, I didn't necessarily know the history at that point of Bassett Creek and, you know, um, its connection to the Dakota people. But um, then shortly afterwards, I transferred to um, Breck School, which um, is right next to Theo Worth Parkway and Bassett Creek. And so um, with some of our extracurriculars with uh, soccer, um, we'd run around um, or we'd you know, go running over in Theo Worth. And so um, that got me to have a, a little bit more of a connection with uh, some of the waters further down from, from the origins. But, but yeah, that was uh, when I first got connected with it. All right, it sounds like there's almost like multiple kind of intersections here. Um, even being from Brooklyn Park, it's not that far away from the Bassett Creek watershed. Um, and closer to some of those communities on the northern tier, like Robbinsdale, Crystal. Um, but then a more immediate connection through fishing with your dad and then going to school at Breck, which is right in Golden Valley. Um, so with that, what brought you and your family to this area or more specifically, maybe to Brooklyn Park? Yeah. Um... My parents, my dad's uh, from Pueblo of Zuni and my mom's from Turtle Mountains. Um, so New Mexico and North Dakota respectively, but they met at uh, Haskell, um, which is all native college down in Lawrence, Kansas. And they both got their AA down there. And then uh, shortly afterwards moved up to Fargo to go to North Dakota State University. And uh, shortly after they graduated, um, they found work with, uh, it was then US West, which is now CenturyLink. Um, in Minneapolis, and uh, they both uh, decided that Brooklyn Park was where we were going to move, and so that was in 1991 when we moved out to Brooklyn Park. Wow, so you were a youngster born? I, I, was, a, I was a little less than one years old at that time. Oh, wow, so you have kind of lived there your whole life until recently. 31, yeah, 31 years. That wow. Brooklyn Park. Yeah. Did you live in the same house? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's like such a rarity these days. So yeah. many memories, I bet. Oh, for sure. A lot of memories. And I, I think that'll tie into, you know, some of what I mentioned yeah. with some of these questions. But it was, uh, and then growing up, it was only like a mile and a half from the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, our parents growing up, oh, me and my, I have an older brother, um, one other sibling, they'd always take us down to the river and you know, go for walks or go for bike rides. And so I always had that connection. Yeah. And I'm sure living there your whole life too, you've seen so much change, both community change, but environmental change as well. Oh, definitely. For sure. So where did you attend school? Um, I know you attended Breck. Did you go there your entire um, K through 12 career? Uh, I was actually initially a product of Anoka Hennepin School District number 11. All right. Is that you as well? Or? Yeah, I graduated from Coon Rapids High School and I went, I was in Anoka Hennepin K through 12. Okay. Yeah. And then I loved it so back I, much. I went back and I worked there after finishing my bachelor's degree. 
Oh, really? Yeah. And that was in, or what were you doing for work? Um, I worked in the Indian education program. Okay. Did you know uh, Robin Nelson? I did. She was still there um, when I was there. I was there for two years before moving on. But I, she worked there when I was a student, a K-12 student. And then when I w- worked there professionally, she was there, still there too. She was my uh, first Indian education, uh, I don't know if as advisor or, you know, um, she would come into our class. And that was from like, I went to Monroe Elementary and then Jackson Middle School and then Champlain Park. Okay. So, through, the, through that progression, uh, at least up until middle school, um, you know, I had gotten to know her pretty, pretty well. And she was definitely uh, one of the better educators that I that I've had in my history. Yeah. What year did you graduate high school? Uh, 2008. Okay, so I worked for Noga Hennepin Indian Education from about 2000, late 2005 to 2007. Okay. Um, but I worked with students in the kind of Coon Rapids cluster. Okay. Yeah, yeah and, and that was at the same time um, during like my middle school years up until ninth grade, 10th grade. I'd gone to um, some summer camps. One of them was called College Horizons, which mm-hmm. is for native students to get them geared up to go to undergrad, um, to any like higher education institution. And then um, once upon a time through the uh, the general college, there used to be a general college with the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a gentleman named Mark Belcourt. Um, he had a program called Andu Gikandasulin, which is Seek to Know. And that was a Native American math and science camp. Okay. And through going through those different experiences, um, at Champlain Park, I was just a number because we had yeah. so many kids. Right. Is um, I decided to start looking for other opportunities. And so it was in that, you know, when as you started working for Noka Hennepin, that's when I transferred over to Breck for okay. my, last, my last two years. So you were at Breck your 11th and 12th grade years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we know you participated in the Indian education program while at Anoka Hennepin. Um, what was that education like, if any, at Breck in terms of native content or programming? Um, it was very limited, very, there wasn't too many opportunities for cultural exchange, exchange that I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, And like, I know like during our like Native American month when we had our like all school chapel, um, they had like a little intro and I remember it was, uh, it was with Eli, um, his brother and Grant, because they were a couple of years younger than me as they were all uh, around the drum. And so I remember they, they do that like, you know, once a year and burn sage Mm-hmm. But there was there was still just like a massive cultural disconnect with respect to the students and also the parents. So I remember um, I was dating this one this one girl at the time, and uh, I wanted to invite her to the Shakopee powwow. Mm-hmm. And she was raised Roman Catholic, and her mom said that the powwow was too spiritual for her to go to, and so she didn't get to go. And but that was like a I felt not just like a realization for me personally, but like that understanding of it wasn't just like this individual is like experiencing microaggressions at school. Like when I first transferred over there, I was just starting to grow my hair long. And I was made fun of that constantly to the point where I cut it. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that was like an identity issue that I had. Right. And as I was transferring, trying to be accepted into this massive population of students that started through like preschool all the way up. It was, yeah, it was, it was tough to navigate and yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, there's, there, there was definitely work that needed to be done and still needs to be done, but. Yeah. But. You know, I had talked to Grant Tubles um, and Eric Buffalo had, so his children attended Breck and then now you, and I guess I didn't realize or think about that a lot of students start attending Breck in elementary school and probably go all the way up through graduation. So it is probably a close-knit community. So yeah. for you, you definitely felt that starting there in 11th grade. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so 
while living in this area and going to two different schools and then eventually the University of Minnesota, did you know any other Native families or individuals in the area? Um, yeah, growing up, um, definitely had connections and relations with a lot of the other students that were in that Indian education program in Anoka Hennepin, because that gave us opportunities not only to connect with people from like our school with internally, but then also with students from like Andover, Coon Rapids, Blaine. Mm -hmm. And so um, through that, we had opportunities to build relationships with families, go to powwows together, visit each other, have dinners together. And um, some of those relationships still exist. And, you know, getting to see like not only as I'm embarking on my career, but seeing other people in their past that they've started to walk on. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's been nice to see how tight-knit the community still is. And then also at the same time, um, getting involved with, you know, events and um, things that were going on like at the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Um, those are other ways that, you know, we were able to still connect with our native community while still being, you know, like so far from, you know, our home reservation. Right. And even in, even in the suburbs where it's just like, so we're so sparsely spread out. It was, it was nice just to have that community in that place. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though the school district is huge, there's still like native people there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see here. So thinking more about like where you lived and grew up, um, were your was your family able to um, access homeownership or were you renters were you a combination of the two yeah um my parents um initially they moved out into an apartment when we came out to Brooklyn Park but at that point they were looking for homes and then they were able to work on um, purchasing their own home and I you know I didn't as as I grew up you know my I feel like my parents, you know, were able to have more honest conversations about their experiences and um, how like oppression and systematic inequalities exist. And um, it wasn't until just recently, because like, you know, as I, you know, start thinking about someday owning a home, um, just talking to my, my mom about it, because she's, she's more of the person that's involved with the finances, but she had like an honest conversation with me about, um, when they were first applying for home ownership, going through banks to find loans mm -hmm. and finding the one, you know, the bank that they were gonna get the loan from and seeing as the um, loan officer was going through filling out the application for them, when it came down to race, the person checked off white and went about it like, you know, it, it was nothing, but then whenever my mom caught it, she was like, hey, hey, wait, hold on. Like, I'm Native American, I'm American Indian. You mm -hmm. checked the wrong box. And the loan officer was like, oh no, that, that doesn't matter. Like, don't worry about that. But it's very like, you know, as, as I think about um, loan approval or denial rates, and even nowadays, you know, with like, it was right. more recently I saw Wells Fargo, you know, during the pandemic, just like approving refinancing of mortgages is, the denial rate for African-Americans was disproportionately large compared to um, their white counterparts. And so it's like, you know, thinking about the ramifications of housing right. and, and financing of housing and how housing builds wealth. Right. Is, um, it just became like this big understanding of, oh, like this is the big picture. This is how, you know, you could think of something so system systematic, but then see it happen on an individual level. Right. With some of those, it was an aha moment just because like, you know, I hear about these stories, but then whenever you actually hear about it from someone, you know, like my mother, right, it, it has a different weight to it or a different right. reality, you know. Right. Like if it doesn't matter whether you check off white or not, then why are you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, there's plenty of scholarship and studies that have emphasize the role of race in accessing home ownership, both for African-Americans and American Indians. And that's something we're still dealing with today, not only in access, but the then access to generational wealth through home ownership. Um, absolutely. That's been a big thing that's come out of the University of Minnesota with their Mapping Prejudice Project, mm -hmm. um, just with respect to the racial deeds and the covenants right. that 
that denied that home ownership. Right. In my own research, I'm really interested in looking at that and how American Indians specifically has been have been excluded because so much has focused on Afro-Americans and understandably so. But these conversations haven't always happened um, with American Indians and that kind of deliberate exclusion as well. Um, and we see that in some of these Western suburbs, entering Western suburbs, including the Bassett Creek area like Golden Valley and Robbinsdale and Crystal. And a lot of those homes that were you know, built in the 1950s even have race-based covenants in their deeds. So coming out of the Mapping Prejudice Project is another initiative called Just Deeds, hmm. where folks can um, go online or in person and find their the deed to their home and do the work to get rid of any race-based covenant in the legal language there. Yeah, but not something a lot of people know of or take the initiative to actually do or think about like what history that has, the history that that has created. Oh yeah. Well, I even think, I wonder if there's even like just stagnancy towards the desire to do so. Because mm -hmm. right. like, like you had mentioned when I meant, when I said that I'd lived in Brooklyn Park for 31 years, talking about like all the societal changes that happened. Mm -hmm is when we moved there in 91, I wanna say it was about like a roughly 80% white or Caucasian population. And now it's a majority minority community. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of um, a neighbor that um, we grew up next to in their family. Um, the father, the, the head of the household, he was uh, a really racist person. He would constantly harass like me and my brother. Um, and it led up to like, there was one argument that he had with my dad out in the front lawn um, where he told my dad, if you can't live by the white man's laws, move back to the reservation. And um, that was at the time where, you know, it was, it was still relatively predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Then over the course of like the next 10 years, as things rapidly changed, our neighbors started to, you know, we had a lot of East African immigrants we started to have more African-Americans move close to us and it was a matter of time before they moved out. Mm -hmm. But it was that realization of like, how many other people still have that mindset? Right. It can't just be this one person that feels this way. Right. And, and um, yeah, it, it was a realization that sometimes people still haven't changed even though we're in the 21st century and mm -hmm. would hope that there would be some type of progress towards a recognition understanding of mutual respect but right absolutely yeah that's hard what do you do when you live in that close proximity to somebody who's so openly racist but you want to have like a cordial relationship with because of that neighborly proximity too yeah well it's probably better he moved away oh yeah yeah for sure <laughs> um so growing up um did you live with your immediate family were there any other friends or, or i'm sorry were there any other family members that lived nearby in your community um yeah growing up my parents um were both first generation students and so they you know there wasn't too many economic opportunities either in turtle mountains or um zuni for the you know the engineering and business work that they were doing and so um, moving out here, we were initially just, you know, by ourselves as a nuclear family. But then um, shortly afterwards, one of my uncles moved out with his family, but they moved on to Shakopee. Okay. And, and so, you know, relatively close, we would usually get together like once a month, um, you know, just to get together as family. But um, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have any other relatives that lived down here. And then, you know, how you'd mentioned just like connecting with Native families, um, that became kind of like, you know, our community and, you know, when, you know, who we got together with as a family. Yeah. Or just participating in a lot of those Indian education program, you know, activities and stuff like that. And yeah. So do you want to say a little bit about your post um, Breck years and what you did in leaving the area and coming back or what you did for work? Was it all centralized kind of in this West Twin Cities Metro? Oh, um, not quite. I kind of jumped around. Um, I moved down to, I went to Gustavus for a year 
down in St. Peter. Um, and this, like, for me, it was this understanding of, like, everywhere I've gone, I've been close to, like, bodies of water or river. Yeah, I was, like, right nearby the Minnesota River, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was down there for a year. Um, unfortunately, I was just one of two natives um, at the institution and didn't really feel like there was a lot of institutional support for me as a Native American student. So uh, I took a year off and looked for other institutions. That's when I found Augsburg. Oh. And, um, you know, I heard about how big the Augsburg Native undergraduate and graduate community was and was really attracted by the idea of, you know, being able to study with a bunch of other Natives. And so um, that's where I went for my um, first set of um, bachelor's degrees and um, graduated in 2014. And after that, I went up to University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, right along the Red River. And um, that gave me the opportunity to work in this uh, post-baccalaureate program called the uh, Seven Generations Center of Native, or Center of Excellence in Native Behavioral Health. It was a bit of a mouthful, but um, I just got involved with um, um, research experience with graduate and PhD students um, on different mental health um, aspects like uh, substance abuse, suicidality, Mm -hmm. um, and then also touched on some um, elder health, like around elder abuse, um, research around that. And so that gave me an understanding of kind of mental health as a key component to overall physical well-being. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I had thought I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> um, but then I ended up uh, working in, as a policy analyst after, after that experience. And... Um, that got me interested in utilizing statistics to inform public policy. So I went to Morris and then got a statistics degree. What is the body of water over there? Uh, <laughs> it's a bit dry out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So that, that was that was the two years that I that I wasn't close to any, yeah, any big bodies of water, but um but that had, you know, there was the tuition waiver, which was attractive and um, also had a sizable native population because of that. And so um, that was another opportunity for me to get involved um, working with our native community. We had a Native American garden, um, being able to take care of that. And um, we had a great uh, advisor, Gus Claymore and um, great Anishinaabe instructor. And it provided like, you know, a good basis for, you know, figuring out who I am in higher education institutions. And um, so after that, um, leads me to where I'm at today, finishing my graduate program with a master's of public health and master's of public policy. Did you go right from Morris into your master's program? Uh, I took a year off. Okay. So, well, initially I had <clears throat> gotten accepted into Dartmouth for their master's of public health program, mm -hmm. which would have been that following fall, but it's $70,000 and it's only one, a one year program. And then I'd be moving out to Vermont having to take out, you know, an additional For a year. Yeah. And so thinking about like a hundred plus thousand dollar price tag for one year, right. Didn't feasible. It was like, what am I going to acquire in terms of knowledge and capacity and expertise in one year that would be fulfilling other than just like having a degree that said Dartmouth. And so I deferred from that. And then um, since I would you know, grown up in Minnesota and they have um, top ranked public policy and public health programs, I just decided to do a dual degree at home. Uh, gave me a lot of flexibility to stay home and uh, get involved with some things in the community, in the state that um, I don't feel like I would have gotten if I had gone anywhere else. Right. Yeah, sometimes things just seem to fall in place like that with where you're supposed to be. Um, and Dartmouth is appealing, but also very expensive, like you say, for one year, uprooting your whole life. Um, you mentioned being able to get involved in some um, things locally that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to otherwise. In my notes, I hear, have here that you were the first Indigenous person appointed as a member to the Minnesota Environmental Quality Board. That's correct. All right. I feel like maybe we can touch a little bit on that later when we talk about 
um, the actual watershed and kind of like the environmental aspects. Okay. Um, yeah, so you kind of had a big, like big circle in terms of your academics beginning in Anoka Hennepin, then Breck, then Gus Davis, then yeah. Augsburg, then North Dakota State. UND, UND. UND, University mm -hmm. of North Dakota, then University of Minnesota Morris, and then University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Yep. Wow. <clears throat> Congratulations. You're almost done. And actually, when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, my first uh, connection with uh, U of M Twin Cities was my parents were on the American Indian Advisory Board that they had. Oh, wow. And so I remember just being like a little tyke, coming with them to campus, you know, playing around in the classrooms while they're doing their meetings. But, um, you know, the, that that's for me a reminder of just like how long I've been connected in one way, shape or form. Mm -hmm with this institution, which yeah. has played in part why I'm like really passionate about that truth project. Right. Because there's a lot of things that I'm finding out for the first time, whether it be like from the university level, from the state level, just with respect to the truth. Um, right. And how history has been glossed over. Um, right. With respect to like what I was taught through my K through 12 education. And, you know, thinking about if, you know, I'm learning these things for the first time, there's people that go throughout their whole lives not understanding the true history, the true nature of how Minnesota came to be. Right. Right. And then even thinking about, you know, the different histories of these individual institutions with Gus Davis so um, close to that U.S. Dakota war history. Mm -hmm. um, I had the opportunity to talk to Eric Buffalo Head last week and he shared some of the institutional history of Augsburg. Um, thinking about the institutional history of University of Minnesota Morris, and now the history of University of Minnesota, which you've been able to be involved in kind of recovering through the Truth Project. I don't know much about University of North Dakota though, but I assume there's a very interesting American Indian history entangled with that institution as well. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And even the state of North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. So in thinking about the Bassett Creek area, the Hahawakpadan area, have you thought about this Dakota place um, and your relationship to it as a native person? Yeah, um, you know, as I think about what, what its use was for the Dakota people pre-European American context mm -hmm. as a, you know, a trail, a route, um, navigable route used for fishing along, you know, it and its tributaries. Like when I, you know, as I mentioned, having the chance to go fishing out in Medicine Lake, it's mm -hmm. like, there's always, you know, like as I'm, as I cross the Mississippi, sometimes when I'm, when I was walking on campus, when I was back in Minneapolis, sometimes I just stop or whether, or by the Stone Arch Bridge where, uh, um, uh, where the falls are at, St. Anthony Falls are at, um, I always just like stop and like try to imagine how things existed before all the buildings were there and try to just erase all of that and um, think about how things used to be. And so like, right. you know, even though I'm on like a motorized boat <laughs> on Medicine Lake fishing with my dad, like I think about, you know, what it would have been like to be there in like the 1800s, 1700s, mm -hmm. fishing there, you know, with father and son or with, you know, having right. those connections and being able to experience the beauty of nature in a way that we can experience due to, you know, all the development, mm -hmm. all the destruction, all the pollution that's gone into Bassett Creek. Right. Is, you know, it's, it's definitely not, uh, no way, shape or form is it the same. Right. No way, shape or form is it like a, a true realization of what it used to be and these are some of the things that like you know I eventually found out about Bassett Creek about you know the flooding that happened when Minneapolis was first created you know as a city and how powerful that was and then thinking about how it just got manipulated mm -hmm. in the course of time by man-made structures by the U.S. Army Corps all these you know different entities um it's yeah it's a 
unfortunate realization of how colonialism and all these structures see mother nature as a commodified resource that can be manipulated in different ways. And, and so I'm, yeah, I always think about how things used to be. Right. Even, even from like Brooklyn Park. Right. I didn't know that Brooklyn Park used to have, or do have and still has like a couple of trails that Ojibwa people, people used to use like, you know, back before it was, you know, settled. And so hearing about those different connections, seeing those connections, um, it makes me realize that there's a lot more that needs to go into storytelling with respect to these places. Right. I think, you know, as somebody else who grew up in the Twin Cities, like we almost, I don't, like we're so familiar with the history as, as Native people um, and recognizing the significance of that place of the Twin Cities built around the Mississippi River and the Minnesota River, right? Like that was, that happened for a reason. Um, but the lack of knowledge by the general public about that history and the significance of that place um, for Dakota people in particular with like Badote, I think when you're talking about like the development and the deliberate, you know, efforts to redesign the rivers to capture like hydropower, right? And how that has affected such a significant spiritual place for Dakota people. That's not something we see happen in other sacred sites, ceremonial sites. And it really is, it's really sad um, to know that that happened in the past, but it's something that's still ongoing with the pollution and development in these particular areas. So kind of on the flip side of that, how has living um, in a predominantly white suburb, we know that that kind of has changed during your time in Brooklyn Park, but how has growing up in a suburb um, away from your home communities influenced your identity as a Native person? Um, I guess I'll say two things. The first one is, you know, going back to the story about the racist neighbor that I had and what he mentioned with if you can't live by the white man's laws move back to the reservation is like, I didn't know about it at the time because I was just like a little kid mm -hmm. about like what my life's trajectory was going to be or what for me, I felt like, you know, going to Gustavus and um, um, Augsburg, they're both Lutheran institutions. So they're big about vocation. Um, or like your, what your calling is. And then at the same time, growing up with my Native American spirituality is um, having a understanding through the course of my life of <clears throat> the creator brought me here for a purpose, gave me, you know, certain skill sets and um, the talents that I could use um, is it, it, that instilled with me now a desire to affect or try to affect public policy. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me in my education, public health had been a big component with respect to American Indian health outcomes and, you know, disparities that exist not only with those outcomes, but also with healthcare delivery services through Indian Health Service. And so, um, but then, you know, that also being tied to environmental justice or injustice, environmental racism, and, you know, thinking about, like when I think about like Prairie Island and the nuclear caskets that are in their lands. Mm -hmm. all those different decisions that are made is um, it instilled with me a desire to say, okay, if this is how things are, or this is how things, and then like just the idea of like piecemeal change to, to get to where we want to be with respect to at least for native nations, like tribal, you know, full utmost realization of tribal sovereignty and self-determination and that what that means for each individual, individual tribe is it was like, okay, this is, these are how systems exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these are how systems and decisions have to be made in the future. Right. And so that, that formed with me this inherent desire to advocate, you know, not only for Native Americans, but then the second point I was gonna get to is growing up in Minneapolis and especially everything that we've come to realize on a national level with respect to everything that happened after George Floyd was murdered was, you know, this realization that this, these systemic inequalities, although we have this idea of Minnesota nice and Minnesota as one of the best states to live in, when you start 
carving out, you know, all these things by race, you start seeing how um, there's definitely been a power structure that's benefited um, a certain people over, you know, the domination and exploitation of several other groups of people. And so, you know, with that understanding is, you know, it, it was an identity for me that, you know, it was like, I became a, a fighter, a warrior um, of, you know, being able to try to affect public policy, whether that be like me running for office somewhere down the line, or me as a policy practitioner, trying to influence those people who are making those decisions. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, yeah, that kind of ties into some of the work that I've done since then with, you know, state governance and boards and stuff like that. Right. I mean, we need, we need advocates and allies, including our own community members on multiple fronts. And your expertise in policy work is going to be so beneficial. Yeah, I hope so. <clears throat> in terms of culture and cultural involvement, um, were you involved in any cultural activities in the area, either through school or outside of school? Um, in the community where you grew up, or is that something you maybe went to Minneapolis to participate in, or is that something you and your family returned to your um, tribal or reservation communities for? I was a little bit of all of the above. Um, um, you know, in the, in the cities, being able to you know go to Minneapolis American Indian Center um, that provided a lot of connection with respect to, you know, going to powwows, going to activities, you know, being a part of the community. There's always, you know, these local university powwows, like University of Minnesota, Augsburg, some of these other institutions that, that held those like more community spaces. Um, but, you know, growing up um, on my mom's side in Turtle Mountains, we'd go back for, you know, healing ceremonies and sweats. And on my dad's side, um, their tribe down in Zuni, um, they're a lot more um, connected with the culture. A lot of, you know, children grow up learning the language first. Mm. And um, there's, a, there's a sacred time called Shalako during the winter solstice, which is, you know, when we would go down to um, be with our grandparents and our family to go through, you know, the, the month long ceremony. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, um, it was it was difficult when we'd be in Minneapolis and hear about different sweats because um, there's like there's a certain amount of trust that goes into you know being able to either you know both join people but also be able to you know follow um, or you know put your faith and guidance into you know someone who's leading the ceremony that you might not necessarily know. And so those, you know, those relationships took time to develop mm -hmm. and then, you know, being able to build that trust was, you know, something that was essential that my, my dad taught me. Right. And that was something that, I, you know, I still think about even, you know, now that I'm out here in Seattle is being, being mindful of that. Right. These communities and the social networks, they can't just be replicated um, yeah. anywhere. And that does take time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thinking about Hahawakdan and the actual name. Um, so Hahawakdan is the Dakota name for Bassett Creek. What do you think about the role and importance of language and place names, particularly in these settler colonial um, white spaces? I think uh, an important example is the whole process that went behind changing um, Betamakaska from Lake Calhoun mm -hmm. and um, the backlash that was happening by some. And I remember there was a savelakecalhoun.com. There's a website that, you know, this whole movement, these whole things that existed to push back against it was a realization about why we need these types of efforts, these types of movements. And even thinking about Fort Snelling, the, the fight that our state legislators wanted to have against changing it to Fort Snelling at Bedote is, um, you know, very eye-opening with respect to, you know, how much we still have to, um, you know, push 
uh, for advocacy for these name changes because right. when it, when when you get people to engage in that process of changing from I still hear some people say Lake Calhoun, but I still hear other people changing to saying, you know, Betamakaska. And I think once you start making that transition, not only do you do that, but then you're, you're curious about, okay, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What, what does this, what does it translate to? Right. There's teachings. And, the, and that's the thing that I love about when these name changes happen, or even just like signage that goes up to acknowledge this this is these these are these lands or you know that's something that MnDOT is doing with respect to the reservation boundaries, and um, when you start to dissect, like I said, what these translations are, instead of Bassett Creek just being named after some guy last name Bassett, Joel who, Joel, Joel Bassett, <laughs> it's like instead of that being like oh that's what we're going to name it after is you have these descriptive words that describe whether it be like a knowledge that was gained from you know that that specific piece of land or waterway mm -hmm. or it's like i i'm never going to be able to pronounce the word but um like how there's a um a jibwa word for blueberry pie oh yes <laughs> like that's the longest word right <laughs> but everything in it describes the whole process about right, how like the ingredients yeah you know? and so it's like when when you're able to learn about it from that perspective not only does it teach you about that that name the language but also then the culture mm -hmm. and then once you're immersed in that understanding of culture then you know hopefully at that point you're like more intrigued to say i want to learn more right and then i want to start having conversations whether it be with uh native people or you know even you know just conversations you have with your neighbor who are not you know non-native to non-native to start engaging those conversations to understand because i know like there's a, a reclaiming native truths study that was done through like Illuminative that just talked about public perceptions of Native Americans. We have all these stereotypes that exist from Disney movies to sports mascots to you know pop culture and like dances with wolves and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and it's like instead of that being the running narrative or considering us as like a relic of the past, you get to have these conversations about we exist now we advocated for these changes and we're here right right um and yeah. i think so much of that work um like the dual signage or name changes or even getting that on somebody's radar to talk about can also help to do the work um to push back against the people like your neighbor right yeah you can push back against those um exclusionary mentalities because we are still here, right? This is a Dakota place. So really, what was the neighbor doing there, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Or even like an acknowledgement. I don't think there's many people that know of like, you know, the Santee Sioux that were exiled mm -hmm. and having a conversation about what it means for this to be their homeland, to be pushed right. so far away. And then, you know, even with like the American Indian tuition waiver from New York, right. Minnesota, it's like, why aren't they included? Right, <clears throat> right. They were forcibly exiled from their homeland. So when the tuition waiver becomes effective, they will not be eligible for it, All right? Yeah. Those are really important um, conversations to have and to continue to encourage, yeah. Um, thinking about this oral history project in particular, it grew out of a land acknowledgement process, um, something that the Valley Community Presbyterian Church took on and then did the important work of doing more, which is where we're at today. So what do you think about land acknowledgements in general? And then after the work has been done to create a land acknowledgement, which could be just words on a paper, right? What are important follow-up or supplementary um, steps that need to be done to make it respectful and responsible. Oh, land acknowledgements. I joke around that I'm a professional expert at it just because I've been asked so many times to help uh, write them. And um, it's, it's been an interesting development as I've seen more institutions, more organizations start to incorporate land acknowledgements. The, um, 
it seemed like you know an exciting opportunity when it you know first started taking off. It was like okay, so if this is like the first step, then what? Or you know, of you know some type of process of acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't necessarily the the thing that I'm worried about is because so many institutions are doing it is that it's just becoming like a fad or part of you know just like a, a movement of if we do this we can wipe our hands clean give ourselves a pat on the back yeah and i actually heard one time um someone give a land acknowledgement and then immediately after they gave the land acknowledgement they said okay now that we got that out of the way and then started jumping in their presentation and so it's just like sometimes there's a mindlessness that goes into it and just saying like you know this is the politically correct thing to do now right and so then the question becomes all right so if that's you know especially with those kinds of institutions or those kinds of individuals that are doing it in that way it's like okay then what now what mm -hmm. and um it was, it was interesting i saw my friend had shared uh a document about like okay you're doing a land acknowledgement now but and the first thing said give land back yep. and and that seems to be the most controversial thing or things that are laughed at is like okay you'll hear like do-gooders saying okay now what can we do to you know be an advocate be an ally and just you know straight up they were just like give the land back <clears throat> and you know the, those are that's like you know the ultimate that's like one of the ultimate aspects with respect to what that true land acknowledgement honoring of what it would be to be like we stole your land mm -hmm. okay you know and you're not going to give it back but then it then it becomes an understanding of okay then what and then at that point then what becomes what resources are available to you as an institution or as an organization right and so um you know like projects like this where you're able to spread awareness through creating like this oral project, um, whether it be, you know, with like federal agencies or even state entities doing co-management with tribes, mm -hmm. being able to, you know, manage the lands that were um, within their territories. Um, those are opportunities that I think are starting to take somewhat effect now that we're looking at climate change as being like a, a real thing happening to, you know, not only like the fires in California, New Mexico right now, but the droughts that happened, you know, last summer in Minnesota. And, um, and then, you know, the flash rains that happened and, you know, the capacity for like sewers in Twin Cities to be able to manage that capacity. Right. Uh, these are all things that are happening right now. Um, and when it comes to land acknowledgement, it, it is that understanding that we're still here, our people are still here, we're still connected to this land. And as we're facing an existential crisis like this, um, there needs to be that, re not just the returning of land, but a returning of knowledge of, you know, decision-making, of taking care of land, you know, environmental stewardship mm -hmm. back to the original caretakers of the land. And, um, some and some different levels and entities were getting there and so i feel like those are signs of positive movement but it just needs to progress a lot faster and right. so just like this wave of land acknowledgements quick quickly picked up steam the next phase of what these different institutions are able to need to do needs to be implemented right like we need action beyond the words yep yep so you just touched on some environmental concerns, very pressing environmental concerns. So this next question is about um, the management of the Hahawakdan Bassett Creek watershed in the surrounding area today. So is there any advice or initiatives or suggestions you would like to see to those who steward the Hahawakdan Bassett Creek watershed? <laughs> there is a specific Bassett Creek watershed commission yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, one of the important things from the perspective of being on the Environmental Quality Board for Minnesota, as being the first Indigenous person, was um, the perspective that I brought to, you know, the decision making, the conversations that we had. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like, you know, if you could get Indigenous representation 
on a watershed board like that, it goes a long way with respect to how you can maybe not, you know, be the arbiter of change to get everyone to change their minds, but you can influence conversations that get people thinking about things that they might not necessarily have thought of or, right. or um, even advocating for the community. Because that was one thing that I realized through my membership as a citizen member was um, sometimes our citizens were lost in the shuffle. And when it came to <clears throat> public engagement, community engagement, even though that was supposed to be like a centerpiece of our work is um, I felt, and I, I got emails from a lot of our citizen, you know, citizens from Minnesota that were saying like, they didn't feel like they were heard. It was more just like, we'll listen and then move on. But once you incorporate champions like that, who are able to advocate based on experience, based on knowledge, based on, mm -hmm. um, you know, that advocacy um, that goes a long way with respect to how decisions are made. And I know, I know that there's um, cleanup going on. And I know that that's, you know, a necessity as I think about um, just the, you know, every, the underground tunnel going through Minneapolis and yeah. thinking about how dangerous that would be for Mississippi River, for, you know, contaminants, all those heavy metals to get, you know, to seep into the river and, mm -hmm contaminate what you know was already at one point a heavily <laughs> destructed river and you know as we think about I know like recently there was conversation about talking about removing of dams and um, you know thinking about the impacts that that'll all have on not only Bassett Creek but then also you know Mississippi and you know what it flows into. Right. Yeah, that's, there's a, it's just hard to think about how much damage has been done and the effort to get people to pay enough attention to do something to change it for the future. Yeah. Um, I've been learning a lot about the watershed, speaking to other um, folks for this oral history project as well. I also feel like Bassett Creek is such a good place to begin because it, you know, it's it's smaller in scale than something like the Mississippi River. There's still so many individual like private property um, parcels of land that butt up against it. And how do we take action with like those individual citizens that you mentioned as well um, that maybe would care if they knew more about this history and significance. So part of the work of this oral history project is to share that history and then to be in communication with people like the Bassett Creek Watershed Commission as well. So hopefully they take heed to these wise words. Well, I'll, I can definitely carry that message on because um, <clears throat> I also serve on the Minnesota BIPOC environmental justice table. And so, you know, North Minneapolis being, you know, uh, um, heavily minority community, mm -hmm. uh, experiencing a lot of different environmental injustices. Um, I know they have like lead contamination that's worse than Flint. And uh, with the paint. Wow. And so, yeah, these are definitely pressing issues that um, we can definitely see what we can do to build up awareness. Because mm -hmm. public education is such a vital aspect to all of this work. Yeah, two folks I've met through this project, I don't know if you know who they are. Um, Roxanne Gould, she's Ojibwe, and her husband, Jim Rock, is Dakota. And they live right in Golden Valley, not far from the watershed. And they are very staunch advocates of restoration and environmental cleanup. So we can always be in touch after this project too. Um, if you need more allies to join you. Yeah, no, definitely. And no, I mean, they knew so much about the environmental history. It was, it was really great being able to talk to them. He was an uh, instructor for that uh, Native American math and science. Company. Oh, yes, he's very, um, I, I, I just learned so much about him or from him. They're both um, faculty up at University of Minnesota Duluth um, getting to that point in life where they can retire, but they also do 
They also lead a land recovery project um, west of the Twin Cities as well. Okay. Yeah. If you were in town, you could see them on Saturday, June 4th, but maybe sometime in the future when you come back to visit or something, it would be nice to set up a visit. Well, my parents are still there. So yeah, I'll try to find the time to come back. Yeah, they were excited too to learn about some of the other folks participating in this project. So I think you, you would have lots of mutual interests. That's awesome. So two questions to wrap up here. Okay. So thinking um, about the future, what would you like future generations to know about your experiences as a native person growing up and living in a suburb? Future generations, what would I want them to know? I think the, the first thing that came to me was like resiliency, because it was just like going through so much with respect to being like, even for me as an individual, like an overweight Native American with glasses <laughs> was like three strikes I had against me that like people just ridiculed me on a daily basis. And um, the one thing it taught me is like, you know, um, that sense of resiliency is like, I'm still here. I'm, you know, a little bit bruised and battered, but, you know, through these experiences, but um, through the course of that, what I realized is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, um, have gone through similar experiences. They might not be native. Um, it could be, you know, people from all different walks of life, but um, being able to find those people as a support group, um, people to lean on is vital with respect to just, you know, not like saying like make it as in like, you know, it can be a struggle like that sometimes, but um, that support system is vital with respect to being able to adapt, being able to navigate these structures. And, you know, I know there's a lot changing, like I said, with Wickham Park, in my experience, now it's a majority minority community, but, um, you know, <clears throat> these institutions, whether or not they're in, you know, suburbia or, you know, like higher education, land grant institutions is, um, that resiliency is gonna come in handy as saying it lightly, but it's gonna be vital with respect to navigating these institutions, whether or not you wanna change them or you just wanna get through them. Mm -hmm. And either way, um, you know, there's, there's still those underlying experiences that sometimes we, a lot of us go through is, you know, whether it be natives or people of color that, um, finding that support group is vital and it changes over the course of time, you know, as right. you navigate these different institutions, but um, there's always people out there that are willing to listen, willing to be there to be a support. Um, and I know for me personally, I didn't necessarily do all that reaching out. I was an introvert, but it's good to be mindful of the fact that, um, you know, like you were saying with uh, Roxanne and with Jim is you might, you know, I felt like when I first started off in that environmental advocacy role <clears throat> is that I was navigating by myself. Mm -hmm. but, but it's like there's so many people out there that um, right. are either going to be supportive, be allies, or, you know, be there to help you fight or even just be there to listen to you as you're going through what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And um, just being able to talk, but also being able to listen, mm -hmm. especially to elders. I guess right. I, I just leave it on that note is um, it took me a while to figure out who to trust with respect to elders and with respect to asking, you know, for mentorship and guidance. But um, that was something that I wish I started earlier. Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to live with my grandparents. Um, and so I didn't necessarily have that, you know, grandparent figure role. But mm -hmm. as I've um, in the past couple of years, as I've started to reach out, um, listening to kind-hearted elders share wisdom, share knowledge about their experiences, what they've gone through, but also just how to navigate through life and stresses and everything that goes along with it is 
that's been, uh, you know, as I'm getting older now, the biggest gift that um, the creator has given me is that ability to connect. Yeah, I feel like that was the best answer. I don't have anything to add to that at all. But I will say, I think, you know, if anything this oral history project can offer is that for other young Native people at some point to find these, right, and hear these stories. And yeah, it can be a struggle to grow up in these places that are really white, away from communities, have racist neighbors, get teased for having Indian, long Indian hair, um, but the real resiliency. And then so much of what I've learned from you, Ben, is that you've always, you know, been connected to your community, like you and your family has done, have done the work to maintain that. But now you are in a point in your life where you're able to work to give back to the Native community. Um, wherever you are living. And you've been doing that, you know, since your time um, at the University of Minnesota in particular, being on these different state level agencies. Yeah, and that's something that I hope I get to continue to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I actually wanted to add something to that last answer that I had, because it, it just it just came to me. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. My next question is, is there anything else you would like to add? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So what I was thinking about, and this was like, with respect to identity, um, growing up as a suburban native, um, I wasn't, I still wasn't accepted even within like the urban native community. Um, when I was going to Augsburg, I was tutoring at South High in Minneapolis for all nations program. And I remember plenty of times like I'd get in, I get on at the Franklin station light rail and uh, people would call me an apple. I was red on the outside and white on the inside. And when I think about, you know, how connected I've been with not only my community, but my culture and, you know, ceremony and, you know, everything that's gone into the teachings that, you know, my, my relatives have provided me through the course of my life is like that, that definitely hurt, you know, when mm -hmm. my own, when I experienced lateral oppression um, right. and what it means like to be less than both in the eyes of white people, but then also my own people. And like, you know, it sat, that sat with me for a long time, but what also sat with me with respect to that was like belonging, mm -hmm. where my sense of belonging was. And, you know, I grew up with white friends. I grew up with, you know, a bunch of other, you know, all types of friends. And it was always just something that like, that was like a strike against me. And so like, as I grew up and this was even like up until recently and moving around, it was just like having internal conversations with myself about where home was, yeah. where, where home is. And, um, you know, like I've shared so far as I pretty much grew up in Brooklyn Park in that same house my entire life. And it felt like a house, but not a home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was, a, it was a home because my family was there. And then that got me thinking about, okay, where, where is home for me? Right. Uh, uh, you know, I live in Seattle, but it's not my home. It's a, you know, it's just, you know, it's a place where I'm living right now. But as I thought about it, and I was, I, you know, growing up, I've been fortunate enough to go back to both of my, the reservations that my parents come from, um, Turtle Mountains multiple times a year, Zuni since it was so far and we had a big family, maybe like one, we'd go once a year during Shalco. And um, as I grew up and started to travel more and, you know, go there and think about it, it was always just this understanding of just for me at that point and what I've come to realize is home is where my family's at mm -hmm. um it's not you know it's not necessarily tied to all these places that I've lived but you know where where my family is they all have a piece of my heart and that's been a major source of um strength for me when I when I've thought about that and mm -hmm. so with this western mentality of like that's your home that's where you live is like your physical structure yeah from a different perspective is like home is where all my family's at because that's where all my connections are at and that's where you know all the love is and so you know i think i think that was like a big 
revelation for me as I felt like I was kind of lost trying to figure out, you know, um, where my place was in this world. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. This project may serve as a model for other communities that seek to go beyond land acknowledgement. To learn more about this oral history project, please contact Hennepin History Museum. The project was produced following the standards and principles of the Oral History Association. In addition to this podcast, the interview recordings, transcripts, and narrator files included signed legal released agreements can be found at the Hennepin History Museum. Funding and other support was provided by the St. Anthony's Falls Heritage Board, Hennepin History Museum, Valley Community Presbyterian Church, and the University of Wisconsin. This publication was also made possible in part by the people of Minnesota through a grant funded by an appropriation to the Minnesota Historical Society from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Any views, findings, opinions, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the state of Minnesota, the Minnesota Historical Society, or the Minnesota Historic Resources Advisory Committee. Anaya Chopta Pecha Wopira Unkenichiapi. Thank you for listening.